Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome to another episode of Compliance Beat. As always, I'm Eric Moorhead, and I would love to hear from you. If you've got questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes of the podcast, you can reach me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com, or you can reach us on our website at compliancebeat.com. Today, I wanted to talk about three common uh, mistakes that I see made when people are updating their code of conduct or going through a code of conduct revision project. I've worked on, uh, I always say 60 or more, but I've been saying 60 or more for a couple of years now, so it's probably well over 60. I've not gone back and actually counted up uh, recently how many uh, codes, but well over six dozen, I think is probably fair. Uh, code of conduct projects uh, that I've had some uh, either supervisory or, or uh, uh, some sort of a role in revising or helping a client revise over the past 10 years. And I've learned a lot of lessons from that. And, and what's uh, brought this to my attention is I'm going to be presenting at uh, the SCCE's uh, Compliance and Ethics Institute, uh, going to be in Las Vegas this year, but it's also going to be virtual uh, for those of you who are still not traveling. Uh, and that's going to be September the 19th through the 22nd, 2021. Uh, in Vegas, but also virtually. And one of the sessions, uh, uh, I'm going to be presenting uh, two different sessions, uh, co-presenting one on the sentencing guidelines and uh, presenting a session on the 22nd of September on lessons learned from 60 Code of Conduct projects. So when I'm starting to prepare my ideas of what I'm going to do uh, in a couple of months to present to the SCCE audience, one of the things that obviously comes to mind are those pitfalls or problems or issues that come up uh, when uh, organizations seek to update their code of conduct. Uh, code of conduct, I think, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, and there are several podcasts uh, in, if you look back through the archives where I talk about different aspects of developing code of conduct. I think uh, one issue, and this is not one of the three, but one kind of overarching issue that leads to uh, the three things I'm going to talk about here in a few minutes is uh, the notion that a code of conduct is not that difficult or is as a project that is not doesn't necessarily need to command that much attention. Uh, it's something that can be done on the lunch hour <laughs> here and there uh, to update the code. So you certainly can do that. You certainly can uh, if you're an assistant general counsel or compli chief compliance officer or whatever your role is, uh, take a few minutes here and there and cobble together uh, some edits and changes and, and you, you will have something. Uh, and and you know, you, you know, that will uh, perhaps uh, uh, meet the criteria of a code of conduct, but it's not really, I think, what most organizations are looking for these days. You're looking for a code of conduct that will, as our friends at the Department of Justice have said for many years now, be the foundation or the cornerstone of your program. As such, uh, this is a project that you really should devote some resources and attention to. Whether you go outside the organization to get third parties to assist you or not, uh, you need to dedicate uh, the amount of resources and time necessary to really do an effective job. 
So what are the top three uh, mistakes or pitfalls that I see over and over again on these projects? Well, first and foremost is uh, not recognizing the time necessary to get the project done. Timeline, 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 timeline is a constant, constant issue. It's pretty common for me to have an initial consultation with the client and we'll go something like this where they'll say, here's what we want to do. We want to revise the code. We want to make it look fresh and cool. And we want to make, you know, we want it to look like our peers uh, codes of conduct that they've updated recently in the last few years. Uh, we want to make sure that we do a, a thorough review of, of the uh, risks that uh, uh, we're facing and that our code addresses those risks appropriately. And we want to do all of this in about five weeks and, and present it at the board meeting uh, coming up here in August. Um, that's just not realistic. That's not realistic. I, you know, I have worked with a client before that from the beginning to end uh, did revise their code and I think put together a pretty good code of conduct. Um, uh, it was a project that I was assisting them with. But there were a lot of people involved. A lot of people took a lot of time and effort. And we were able to get it done in just under nine weeks, but it was a forced march, and it was really, really difficult to get it done in that time frame. And it really it, it required a lot of time and effort, not only from myself and, and my crew uh, that were helping from the outside, but a, but more than a half a dozen uh, people really devoting a significant amount of their time to the project internally at the organization. Um, a more realistic timeline is more like 20 weeks. Um, uh, you know, anywhere, anywhere from 18 to 24 weeks, you know, 20 weeks kind of the kind of as your uh, default start starting place. Uh, it takes some time to do this. It takes some time to do the benchmarking and research uh, to understand uh, what you need to do, what changes you need to make. Uh, it takes some time to draft and revise and draft and revise and edit and draft and revise that content. It takes some significant amount of time uh, for uh, the relevant stakeholders in an organization to review their the, the code or their the portion of the code that they're the subject matter experts for to to uh, uh, have a, an intelligent and reasonable um, review process uh, a review process that that really uh, takes into account uh, those SMEs and their expertise. Uh, that takes time. It takes time. And, and so the number one mistake that I see over and over again are organizations walking into a code of conduct revision process and wanting to get it done in a matter of a few weeks. Now, all that being said, uh, there are circumstances that come up where, for example, an organization that might be under um, uh, a deferred prosecution agreement or some other um, have some other external mandate or a mandate from the board of directors or, or the management of the organization that they have a code by a date certain, um, you know, you do what you have to do. Uh, and you can certainly um, engage third parties uh, to work uh, uh, extra hours and, and, and overtime hours to get that done. Uh, but you need to really, if you don't have such a situation or you know that you need to have a code, you know, we're in July now, you know that you need to have a code by December 1, you need to get started now. You need to get started now if you want to have something by the end of this year, honestly.
That's that's the reality. Uh, so the you know the number one mistake that I see and and happens over and over again is not really devoting the appropriate amount of time and not really thinking through the different pieces of the puzzle, the different part, parts of the process. Because it's not only you know take tackling the content, the 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 verbiage, the copy of the code of conduct and rewriting it and revising it and editing it and making sure that it is uh, factually and legal, legally accurate and making sure that it, is, it appropriately addresses the risks of your organization and appropriately uh, sets out the expectations for your employees and other stakeholders so they understand what to do. That's a lot of work. But beyond that, there's the design uh, and implementation of the design. You know, photography, if you're going to have photography in it and you're not going to use photos that already exist, and maybe there's uh, photography that has to happen. Um, uh, other design elements that, that will take time, and integrating uh, that content that you created into that design takes some time. And translations. For most multinational organizations these days, you know, we're talking on average between six and ten translations of the code of conduct, sometimes up to 20. Uh, I've seen uh, organizations have 20 or more translations of their code. That takes time too. Even if you work with a really sophisticated translation partner uh, that has resources, it takes them the better part of a month uh, to, to uh, uh, get that uh, work done, reviewed by your native speakers, and, and turned back in with any changes. So you need to appropriately, appropriately provide for the time that it's going to take. That's you know, I'm spending some time talking about time here because it is a consistent, consistent issue. So keep that in mind. You, you would be surprised and uh, the amount of time it's going to take. Um, the second uh, mistake I see is related to the first. It, it is related to timing in a way. But it is uh, the failure to get sign-off or approval or buy-in, whatever you want to call it, or, or failure to provide... Uh, for review of, of, of necessary reviewers uh, in a timely fashion. Um, the most common um, flavor of this that I've seen probably a half a dozen times over the last 10 years is where um, you have tacit uh, approval from, say, the general counsel uh, of, of the organization, that they understand that the project, project's ongoing and they're okay with the direction you're going in, but you don't turn over the draft to the general counsel until you've done the third or fourth draft and you're looking at trying to get the design done in the next month and you get a bunch of red lines back um, from, from general counsel or you get a bunch of red lines back from your subject matter experts on certain topics. You can't wait too late into the timeline to get the buy-in, sign-off, understanding about how the content is going to be managed and drafted uh, at a late at that late date, it just throws the entire project into chaos. And I've seen it again happen about a half dozen times where uh, everybody thought they were on the same page, we were going in the same direction with the tone and the and the drafting of the code, and you turn it over to general counsel or turn it over to. Uh, the chief compliance officer who was not involved up to that point or whomever or, or a group of whomevers <laughs> and it, it becomes uh, uh, a major hurdle because you have to pretty much start over from scratch because they don't like the direction or they don't understand the direction or there's there's disagreement amongst the team. 
it's really, really important up front that you get buy-in and you get an understanding from the general counsel and others that uh, you're going to go in a certain direction. And if you know that even though you have that understanding uh, that there that certain um, certain stakeholders in your organization are going to have to review it and sign off on it, do that sooner rather than later. Do that on draft one or draft two at the latest rather than draft four or five when you're polishing things up and you think you're getting ready to finish and then all of a sudden uh, everything gets turned over. That to me is a real, it can be a real project killer. Uh, and, it, and, it, and, it is, and it's all down to poor planning. It's not necessarily inevitable. You just have to get them involved from an early stage or you have to get an understanding from those stakeholders, that broader group of stakeholders that, hey, we're going to draft in a certain way. Uh, we want you to review the content for accuracy, accuracy and completeness, but we're not interested in you redlining this document. That's something that um, I encourage my clients to do frequently, and we do frequently in this process. And, you know, we have I have canned language to the that, that I that I provide to clients to provide to people who are going to review the document. And say, hey, look, you're not editing this document like a law review article. Uh, you are looking to make sure that we have captured the risk accurately, and we have coverage and it's complete and you don't see that we're missing anything here. We're not interested in editorial comments about how we're presenting the topic. Uh, that can be hard and you still are going to get people who are going to go through and redline it anyway, but you, you need to have an understanding and you need to have the authority to do that as the person responsible for the code of conduct. So you have to you know, have the, you know, the, the marching orders from general counsel, from the board or whomever you need to get the marching orders from, that you uh, or your team are going to be the final arbiters of the content of the code and not, uh, and it can't be uh, uh, thrown into um, chaos at a later stage by somebody coming in and redlining the whole document. That happens, uh, uh, you know, as I said, in, in projects I've been working on directly, Thankfully, it has only happened a handful of times, and we've been able to right the ship and make it work. But it creates uh, a lot of chaos and, and obviously adds a lot of time and effort and resources to the project. The third mistake um, that um, I want to talk about is um, also related uh, to, to the first and second mistake. Uh, and it is a, a failure to break out of your bubble. What, am I, what do I mean there? When we're talking about a code of conduct project, one of the things that I've mentioned in the podcast um, in the last year or so uh, in, in some of the uh, um, uh, prior editions of this podcast is when we're talking about the guidance from the Department of Justice and the expectations that we see, generally speaking, about uh, how codes are developed and, and uh, uh, how codes are, are, are distributed how codes are revised, reviewed, benchmarked. Uh, it's no longer a, a project that can happen in a silo. There's an expectation that there's going to be a much wider range of individuals involved in the process of updating your code of conduct, benchmarking your code of conduct, delivering your code of conduct, and communicating about it than uh, just you or your small group of people who are responsible for compliance. 
Now I've talked before in practical terms about how to get that done. This doesn't mean that you let everybody have a red pen and, and be involved in the editing process of, of the content. No, no, no. But you break up the process of, of revising your code of conduct into distinct steps and you involve a broader coalition of people uh, throughout the organization, including operational management, in that process. Perfect example would be a client I worked with here recently on their code. Uh, part of their code of conduct revision process was putting together a purpose-built survey for managers throughout the organization. And they also had uh, conference calls with managers. And so they were engaging operational management about what was going to happen, about the update of their code of conduct. And they solicited their opinion both in these um, uh, working sessions, but also through a survey so that they could, you know, reasonably say uh, down the road if they were ever, if it was, if there was ever a query that they had engaged a broader population about what changes needed to be wrought uh, for the new code of conduct. And they also had the data so they could look through there and they could see, hey, look, one of the things that came up in these sessions and came up in our survey is that managers don't feel like uh, the language of the code uh, accurately reflects the sort of boots on the ground experiences that that many of the employees have with some of these topics like anti-corruption for example and so you can take that into your process and it, it allows you to say okay what's what are they actually facing out there what are the practical concerns that they have around uh, vetting third parties and, and how that affects uh, anti-corruption operations so um, it allows you to expand, you know, the, the, your vision on what the code should be, what, what the risks are, and how the code can encompass and, and, and address those risks and set expectations. So you need to break out of your bubble, um, uh, you know, uh, and solicit opinion and, 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 and do a listening tour or Whatever, whatever tools you want to use to get a broader perspective on what the code should be, what changes really need to happen to the code, what would make the code better and more useful uh, in everyday situations for your stakeholders. And you also need to break out of the bubble from just looking at your code, your policies, uh, your ERM. You need to look at peer um, uh, codes and see what they are doing. Um, and by peer codes, I, there's really, and I've talked about this before, when I talk about uh, looking at peers, whether you're talking about code of conduct or you're talking more broadly about uh, program assessment, you know, looking at all the aspects of your compliance program, there's really two groups. There's uh, there's the, 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 the true, you know, what I would say true peers or close peers that are in your same industry, same space, uh, the companies that you compare yourselves to, the companies that are in your uh, your your public reporting as, as listed as competitors, those those companies are, you know, again, true peers, organizations that presumably are fa facing many, if not all, of the same risks uh, that you're facing. Uh, and then there's a broader group of peers, organizations that have. Uh, uh, you know that are not necessarily similar, not in the same industry as you, not in the same space, but all organizations share uh, certain risks. All organizations have risks around respect issues, around uh, harassment and uh, equal opportunity. 
uh, if you have people, you have people issues, right? Uh, all organizations, uh, to a certain extent, have safety and um, uh, workplace uh, issues that they need to address. There are risks that you have in common with an organization doing a com completely different work from what your organization is doing. So break out of the bubble uh, when you are contemplating updating your code. Look at codes of conduct and other uh, written materials uh, from organizations um, in your space, but also in others in, in, in the broader um, uh, public space. Uh, look at codes that you like for different reasons. Look at codes you like for the design and the way that they're presented and how they look and how they use photos and the kind of you know uh, emotional appeal, if you will. But also look at codes that uh, you like because of their treatment and how they describe certain risks and expectations. Uh, not you know maybe there's no one perfect peer code that does everything right, but if you do a a reasonable enough assay and look at several codes, you're going to find different aspects that you like that you may want to adopt or uh, consider to ad adopting. And then break out your, and then also remember to break out of the bubble within your organization and involve the, the wider group of operational management and, you know, not just the usual suspects, not just the people in the legal department, not just the people in audit uh, and compliance um, and HR which are, you know, you're going to naturally going to be, be consulting those SMEs because they're important, but think about the broader group and break out of that bubble. So those are three things. Um, really pay attention to a reasonable timeline. Think about the resources and time that you need. Uh, get the right people involved uh, early on. Uh, don't get uh, your program over, you know, upturned and, and put in chaos because uh, you didn't get sign off from the, uh, you didn't get the sign off you thought you had uh, from the general counsel until it's too late. And then third, invo involve a broader group within the organization and outside the organization to really understand where you want to go with your um, code of conduct update. I hope that was helpful. Um, I hope that for, for those of you who are contemplating an, an update to your code, that um, those are things that, that you really want to think about, those pitfalls before you get too deep into it. As always, uh, appreciate you listening. Uh, if you've got questions, comments, uh, suggestions for future podcasts, just feel free to reach out to me directly, eric at moreheadconsulting.com, or you can reach us through the website, compliancebeat.com. Thanks again. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.